John chapter 17, as we kind of pick up with where we left off a week ago. John chapter 17, we'll be starting in verse 9. This prayer of Jesus. John chapter 17, starting with verse 9. Jesus praying, verse 9. Remember we, prayed the first, we, we read the first section of this prayer last week. Jesus praying here, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 11, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was in the world... I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they, may also, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Let's pray again. Father, we need your spirit to minister in us, through us, among us. Lord, soften every heart, open every ear. Holy Spirit, I ask for your anointing. I could never do the work of imparting your word, dividing your word without the help of your spirit. Uh, Lord, wash us, cleanse us by your word, and Lord, sanctify us by your word, even as we are reading it this morning. That was the desire, Jesus, that you had for the disciples and I know you have for us as well. Speak to each heart what they need, what we need, what I need. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. With every passing second, Jesus is closer and closer to the agony of the cross. But that's not his focus here in this prayer at the close of this upper room discourse. He began by praying to the Father to use this excruciating hour that had come upon him to bring glory to him and the Father. He's reflected on what's been accomplished in bringing eternal life to this world. The calling of each disciple that the Father has given him and the finished work of his earthly ministry, his teaching, the training of the disciples, and the joy and praise of these men who now fully believe that Jesus came from God. And as he continues to pray, here in this middle section of the prayer, Jesus turns all of his attention to the preservation of the 11, which includes the next three days, which are going to try their souls, and are going to try their minds. As well as beyond the cross and beyond the resurrection, because they will be given the task 
of taking the gospel and making disciples in a world that's mired in total darkness, sin-bound, ignorance, and direct opposition to Jesus, and now is going to be direct opposition to them. Do you ever feel like you're in opposition to the world? You are, whether you know it or not. If you're taking notes, John chapter 17, part 2, sanctify the disciples, the prayer of Jesus. Sanctify the disciples. Let's jump right into verse 9 here. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. But these first four words, I pray for them. Let me start with the obvious. If Jesus is praying for you, you can better believe you need his prayers. Right? I pray for you. You don't have to wonder. You know you need his prayers. This is Jesus fulfilling the role of high priest and mediator. We see this in the book of Romans. We see it in the book of Hebrews. Now, though it's not recorded in John's gospel, the the Holy Spirit gave John, the Apostle John, it was his job to record the upper room discourse in this magnificent, powerful prayer of Jesus. That was his exclusively. The other three Gospels don't record that. But, recorded in Luke's Gospel, the same night, same upper room meeting, Jesus said this to Simon Peter. I'll put it up on the screen. You might be familiar with it. Jesus said to Peter, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. I love one time I heard Pastor David Guzik preaching on this. He said, Lord, you told him no, right? (laughs) If he's asking for me, you tell him I'm not here. But that's not what Jesus says. And we know that Satan wanted to discourage. He wanted to derail. He wanted to destroy all of the disciples if he could. Jesus told them at the end of chapter 16, remember at the end of chapter 16, Jesus said, all of you will be made to scatter. Same upper room discourse. They would be deeply shaken. They would be hanging by a thread. Have you ever been hanging by a thread? Some of you say, I'm here this morning. That's me. I'm glad you're here. But they would not fall away. They would not return to unbelief. I don't care how discouraged you might be at times. If you know the Lord, you are not going to return to unbelief. They are not going to return to their old lives. And we see why. We see why with what Jesus says to Peter. We see it here in John chapter 17. But look at what Jesus says to Peter in the very next verse. This is why Peter's not going to go back to unbelief. Luke chapter 22, verse 32, next verse. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now I'm sure that Peter would say, hold a time out. Um, And in just a few hours, I'm going to deny you three times. Yes. 
you can fail God but not return to your old self. You can fail but not return to the world. You can fail but say, you still believe, you just blew it. And Jesus says, I'm going to I'm going to pick you up many times. If you're a Christian, you're going to be picked up many times in your lifetime having blown it, but not having thrown away your faith. If it's genuine, you couldn't throw it away anyway. But that reassuring word, here Jesus says it again. He says right here in Luke, I have prayed for you. Here he says, I have prayed for them. That reassuring word, that would no doubt come back to Peter's mind many times in his life. I'm sure many times Peter was like, Oh, now he might not have had a deny Jesus three times moment ever again, but he might have had days where he's like, I cannot believe, I thought I was more mature than this, and I fell down and skinned my knees all over again, spiritually speaking, and he remembers, oh yeah, Jesus prayed for me that my faith would not fail. You can pray that this week. Jesus, you prayed for me that my faith would not fail. That reassurance would come back to him. And even though it was specific to Peter, we know he's not only praying for Peter, because here it says, I've prayed for them, plural, all of them. Jesus goes on in his prayer. He expresses that he's not praying here for the world. Obviously, Jesus loved the world. He came to die for the world. He's about to die for the sins of the entire world just hours from this. But this portion of prayer is dedicated to the 11 men that are in the upper room with him. That will be the apostles. These men that he dearly loves, he is dearly led. He said they are going to be on 12 thrones. They're going to have they're going to be part of the foundation of heaven. Jesus is high priest to his own. He's not high priest to people that have yet to come and believe in him as their lord and savior. Does that make sense? He is high priest of the household of God. Once you're in the household of God, he's your high priest. If you're outside the household of God, He's not your priest. Now, he's bidding with open arms to be your priest, but he's not your priest. In other words, it'd be like someone who is halfway around the world. They never even had a notion of being adopted. They don't have an adoptive parent. But when they're adopted, that becomes their parent, right? So there's this change where Jesus is, he is their high priest. And he's praying as their high priest here, not for the world. And Jesus reflects, we talked about Jesus reflecting on things in the opening part of his prayer. He reflects again here on the gratitude to the Father and that preordained will of God. And we understand there's so many things that are preordained in the will of God, uh, that God has given these men to Jesus, and yet they still belong to the Father. There's a unified and shared possession of these men to live their lives to the glory of God the Father and God the Son. Now those of you that are married, now that you become married, maybe you've married for a long time, I did a wedding just two weeks ago and they're out on their honeymoon right now. Uh, once you become married, the way it's supposed to be is not, well, before you're married, this belongs to me. And your spouse says, this belongs to me. You get married, it's like, it all belongs to us. Right. It's not me, it's we now, Right? And it's a shared possession. And the reason why some people end up divorced, they never really learn that it's no longer your stuff and my stuff, it's ours. And your life isn't even your own anymore. You have become one flesh, as the Bible says. Well, God the Father and God the Son, they've always been one. And yet here next, Jesus specifically states this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. It's a great verse 
to employ in your marriage. And I am glorified in them. We'll get to that in just a second. But do the disciples, does any believer belong to God or to the Son? Yes. yes. Right? You belong to God and you belong to Jesus. And you belong to the oneness of the Godhead. But the intended outworking of their lives, Jesus says, um, they, I am your, they are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The intended outworking of their lives and our lives is intended to be that Jesus is glorified. Amen. Not to glorify them, not to glorify John or Andrew or Peter or us today, but that the Master, that the Savior is glorified. But their Savior, their Master, their Rabbi, he's told them, as you guys know, we've talked about this throughout the evening, he's told them he's leaving, he's going back to the Father. And so verse 11 moves in back into a petition. This is a reflection, back into verse 11. This is a petition. Verse 11, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So here's the petition. Jesus is saying that they would be kept, that they would be one as we are. Jesus is, of course, still there physically. But his return to the Father is inevitable because he says, you might read this and say, hold on a second, how is Jesus no longer in the world when he's in the world? He says, now I am no longer in the world, the beginning of verse 11. Now, aside from parts of that we may not understand, what we can know for certain is there's nothing that can possibly prevent Jesus from returning to the Father. Amen? Amen? When he says, I'm no longer the world, it's as good as, as, if, he, it's as, good as if he's gone because no one, not Satan, not Pilate, not Herod, nobody, not, not all, all the armies of the world can prevent him from returning to the Father. His down payment is done. He's no long, he says, I'm no longer of this world. His eyes are already lifted heavenward. He's talked about the Father's uh, place a number of times throughout the evening. Uh, the Scottish theologian Mar Marcus Dodd says this, it's up on the screen, Jesus is no longer in the world. Already he has bid farewell to it. But the disciples remain in it, exposed without his accustomed counsel and defense. By the way, it's really good for you and I to learn to bid farewell to this world while we're still walking in it. Amen? Because if you bid farewell to it, you're not near as tempted by it. Amen. That makes sense? And you're not near as bummed out that it's falling apart. You may have a heart for the souls, but you're not trying to hold on. Uh, in other words, you're, you're not so worried about the planet. You're worried about the people in the planet. I'm not saying don't recycle or anything like that. I'm saying that those things are not primary to you. They're very secondary. The souls of people matter. That's why our government's all mixed up. It cares more about trees than people. And unborn babies don't matter, but trees and things like that do. But not to God. Amen? Amen. These 11 men, they've depended on Jesus for uh, three full years. They went from being independent to now total dependence on Jesus. They will continue, but they'll now continue by a work of the Spirit. 
Now, just as prayer, we've prayed several times here this morning. Prayer is in the invisible realm. You cannot buy a person a prayer. You cannot go to Walmart or Amazon. I'd like to buy a 10-pack of prayer. Prayer is invisible. It is a, an invisible thing. It's not tangible. You can't say, here, I'm handing you a prayer for Christmas. And yet you can pray for people all the time. But it's not, it's not something you can grab with your hands. It's not something you can sell, buy, or anything. Prayer is invisible. It's in the invisible realm. So also is following after Jesus when he's physically returned to heaven. I, I know some of the televangelists have had these trips to heaven. I have not. <laughs> And a bunch of those guys are false anyway. But, um, uh, but Jesus has never physically appeared to me. I see him in the scriptures. I see him in the page of scriptures. I see the work of him in many people's lives. I see his work in my life, but I've not met him physically. I know one day I'm going to touch his hands. I'm going to bow at his feet, but I've not met him personally, though he lives inside of me. How is that possible? Someone lives in me that I've not seen face to face. And when Jesus goes to the Father, he, when he prays the Father, his precise words here are, I come to you. It's in the prayer realm. He's saying, Father, I come to you. But these fragile men, they're going to remain on the earth, just like you and I are still on the earth. And notice what he, what he says next. He says, um, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I come to you, and then he says these words, Holy Father. I don't know if you know this or not, but you will now. This is the one and only time that Jesus uses this title, Holy Father. Holy followed by Father. It's the one and only time Jesus uses this title in speaking to his Father. And it's the only time from Genesis to Revelation that we see the term Holy Father. Father in the whole Bible. One time. For that reason alone, although there's many other reasons why we would never want to even use, much less misuse, the name Holy Father, no mortal man should ever be called or referred to with the title Holy Father. And yet that has been the title of popes in Rome for centuries. This is the only time it's ever used. No man on earth should ever be called Holy Father. I'm sorry if, that, if you're bothered by that. Take it up with Jesus. He used it one time, and he only prays it to God the Father. He never, he never even puts the title on himself. He prays, Holy Father, no man on earth should be called Holy Father. And if you watch the news in the future, you will actually see dignitaries and kings and presidents bow down, kiss the Pope's hand and say, Holy Father to him. Watch out for lightning bolts. Just, I wouldn't do it. Um, this is a holy title used once in all of Scripture and Jesus only gives it to the Father. Clearly, God alone is worthy of this name and this title. But why does Jesus combine this name and title? Why does he say Holy Father together. I like William McDonald's observation. It's up on the screen. He says, the title Holy Father. Holy speaks of one who is infinitely high. Father speaks of one who is infinitely nigh. Isn't that true? I, was, uh, I, I follow on Twitter a Christian astrophysicist named Sarah Salvador. And um, I mean, I just love the stuff that she does. She, she focuses on deep space deep space views, uh, works for, I can't remember what uh, 
uh, large organization, but uh, does all these deep space field views. She's also a mathematician and all these things. And she had posted the other day, I, I showed it to my wife, uh, a picture in deep space view. And it looked like a bunch of clouds that looked like fingers, that the clouds made to look like fingers. They, it looks like a hand, but each of them are, it looks like dust, but it's not. It's millions upon millions of stars so close together. They're not close together, but from far away, they look like it. So it looks like these dusty hands, but they're millions and millions of stars. And then there's this right below one little like kind of column or finger is this bright red one. And she says, and that star right there that you can see, that bright red star, is bigger than our entire solar system, that star. Now, our Earth fits in the sun one million times, but that star is bigger than our entire, that star, but it's just a speck in all the other stars, and God's like, in the book of Job, it says, these are the mere edges of his ways. And so you think of a God that's that holy, why you would never say holy father to a man. You think of a God that's powerful, and yet he will condescend to live inside of us and minister to us because he's both high and nigh. The Son would bring them, Jesus being the Son, would bring them to the highness of God, but also to the nearness of God by the invisible work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I, I mentioned again, again, I know that some of the televangelists have been poor, uh, and they haven't, but they've said that they've taken these trips up to heaven and things like that. You and I know that we're, we can't just take a trip to heaven today. If I did, I wouldn't come back anyway. But, uh, um, so I wouldn't want to come back. But uh, we can't take a trip to heaven. I get one trip there. It's in the rapture or when I pass away. Um, one of the two ways I will get to go there and spend all eternity. And those of you that are saved will as well. But interestingly enough, none of us can take a trip to heaven. But yet we know by the scriptures that we can enter the throne room of grace. You guys agree with that? that we can enter the throne room, room of grace. How are we to fully understand that? Well, for one, we can't fully understand that. We can accept and believe it is true, and we can actually experience it by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 4, verse 16, I have it on the screen, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We understand that because Jesus is our mediator, he's our high priest. I talked about this last week. When the temple veil tore in two, the Holy of Holies opened up. And we don't enter into a literal Holy of Holies that was sitting in Jerusalem or was in a tabernacle in the, in the wilderness of Sinai. We enter into the Holy of Holies by the Holy Spirit who lives invisibly but visibly manifested in our changed life in us. Amen? Amen? So we are not able to take a trip to heaven this morning, and yet we can enter the throne room of grace sitting in traffic, in our kitchen, walking down the road. We can enter into the throne room of grace, and that's by the miracle work of the Holy Spirit in us. But it's because Jesus is our high priest. He gives us access until we're brought home to heaven. Now, Jesus continues here in verse 11. He says, um, keep them through your name. Keep them through your name. Uh, not keep them through armed guards. 
not keep them by invincible body armor, not keep them even by angels, although Jesus has the authority to say, hey, I want angels to take care of you and keep you. But he doesn't say that. He says, no, keep them through your name, those you have given me. The name, Holy Father, high and nigh, mighty, reserved only for God. He says, keep them through your name. There's power in the name of God. There's power in the name of Jesus to keep. Amen. You ever notice when people curse? Now, they have a lot of curse words in the lexicon of curse words, right? But there's two that are not actually curse words that Americans and people around the world I've seen as well have imported as if they're curse words. We know a bunch of curse words, right? Don't try and think of them. We, now you do. But anyway, don't. But, but then someone will try and make a point, and they'll use the cur common curse words, and then they'll throw in God or Jesus' name. I've often wondered, why don't they use Muhammad, Allah, Buddha, Confucius in those angry moments to make their point? Why don't it? Because usually the people that do this are not that religious or not religious at all. So I was like, time out. You're not religious, right? Why don't you start employing some of these other names? But I already know the answer. Those names have no power. They have no power. Now, you, got, you spend a lifetime using God's name as a curse word, you'll answer for it on Judgment Day. And you'll wish you had never done that. But he gives grace. He'll forgive anything that anyone's willing to repent. He'll forgive that. But his name does have power, and people use his name to make a point, to put an exclamation or period. And you and I have a reverence for that name. We don't use his name that way. We use it to bid people to come to Christ, Amen. but not use his name to make a, uh, a point about our anger or our frustration or anything like that. But the name has power, and it has power to keep and and. The very name of God has that power to keep, and those that are his, he will keep. And then he gives them to the Son. He says, you've given them to me. Jesus goes on. And you've given them to me that they may be one as we are. If you've been through this study, if you've read the Bible yourself, especially the New Testament, particularly the first uh, four Gospels, you know Jesus has made it clear, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Amen? If you've seen the Son... You have seen the Father. They are one. And we'll look more next week at Jesus' oneness within the Godhead, the one and three unity of the Godhead, because he kind of finishes more of that in the last section of this prayer. But the real unity and oneness in any relationship can only be found through God. Unity in your marriage will never really be one flesh without the help of God, without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Unity in your friendships, unity in your Christian relationships, unity within the body of Christ is by the Spirit and through the Spirit of God. The disciples, I don't know if you knew this, but earlier in the evening, it's not in John's Gospel, but it is recorded in the other Gospels. We'll look at uh, where we see this. But the disciples, earlier this evening, they had had an argument amongst themselves they're in the upper room. You would think the entire night was holy and spiritual. No, they had an argument in the upper room, hour before the cross, about who was going to be the greatest. Yeah. Luke records it for us in Luke twenty-two seventeen. 17. This is seven verses before 
Seven verses before Jesus says to Peter that, sire, Satan, uh, that Satan desired to sift him. By the way, when pride enters the room, Satan enters the room. Bottom line. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Peter's probably like, hold on. It's got to be me because I'm the one that will say what needs to be said. Y'all take too long to kind of have that courageous moment. And then someone else might say, but I'm a better author. Someone else say, but I have the best singing voice or the best preaching voice or whatever it may be. But that kind of comparison never brings unity, does it? True. You ever been in a room and you get to hear a person drone on about themselves? <laughs> Is that enjoyable for anyone here? <laughs> Do any of you, you're, you're out to dinner with someone and you get to hear the person tell you for an hour how great they are. And I did this and I accomplished this. I'm like... Uh, you know, like, um, no. But then fighting and, and arguing about who is greater and who is... And our society loves to compare everything, don't they? Yeah. These are the beautiful people. These are the people that are most smart. These are, you know, and, and it's it crept into the church. I heard Pastor Loran down in Charlotte. I was listening to him. He's like, I got one of these magazines. And it had the top 100 churches. Like, who ranks the top 100 churches? I thought that was Jesus' job. <laughs> But he doesn't even rank them anyway. He considers the smallest to be the greatest among. Right? Amen. Nonsense to say this is the ten greatest churches in America. They might not even be. Laodicea and Sardis thought they were great, and Jesus said that they were dead as a doornail. But they had argued about these things, these kind of comparisons. They don't bring unity. Jesus taught them that the moment that they start to compare themselves, it's a place of disunity. But he taught them that night about serving. That's when he started washing their feet. He said, this, I'm going to bring you together in a heart of serving. The unity in the Godhead that God would send his son for humanity is the servant heart of God. And he wanted to put that into them. Jesus came to serve the will of God. Jesus was one with the will of God. The disciples, they needed a unity in the will of God, not a unity in their Jewishness, not a unity in their knowledge, not a unity in their abilities, a unity in the will of God. That's what God wants to do in all of us, a unity in his will, a unity in his spirit, not a fractured pursuit of their individual desires or their own desire for glory, which is what's going to have to die. And that process was going to be made really clear when Jesus died on the cross that we really kind of expose what were we thinking the night before we're arguing about who's the greatest and he dies for us. <coughs> verse 12, you got to move through his. Uh, verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those, you, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. While Jesus was with them, he kept them in the Father's name. The Father chose each of these men, and he gave these men to Jesus. And Jesus not only kept them, but he changed them. He molded them into the image of God and into servants of God. One of the names of Moses that you guys might remember, it's in the Old Testament, he was called the servant of God. Yeah. David considered himself a servant of the Most High. And so Jesus had taken them and kept them, but he had changed them, and they became servants of God. Do you consider yourself now a servant of the living God? Not serving yourself, serving him. 
But one was not kept. You know Judas had already left the room by this point. We've talked about this. One has not been kept. And the reason he's not been kept is he never fully came to Christ in the first place. I don't believe people lose their salvation. I believe they were never saved because Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not the only verse that kind of convinces me of that, and I'm not here to debate. You know, somebody says, I believe you can lose your salvation. That's okay. I mean, I'm not, I, there's really great brothers and sisters in Christ that disagree with me on this point, and I know they, they love the Lord, and they are saved, so I, I'm believing that they will never be cast out themselves, so uh, that's fine, but, but, but I really view that Judas had never come to saving faith. He was lost he had never come and surrendered himself. He never believed and surrendered his life. And, and let me put it another way. Jesus doesn't lose things like you and I. You ever like, where are my keys? I just had them. Now I'm going to be late. I just had them in my hand. How could I? I couldn't even hide them better than I just did. How, I, I couldn't hide them this well if I wanted to. How can I not find my keys? Like, we've all been there. Jesus doesn't lose things. He's like, man, I just had Judas. How did I lose him? He did not lose Judas. Jesus did not lose Judas. Judas remained lost. Say that again. Jesus did not lose Judas. Judas remained lost. That's why we say we pray for the lost. Lord, bring the lost home. Once they're home, they don't, once you've been born again, you don't get born eight million times. You're born once and you're born twice. Not re-lost and re-found, re-lost, re-found, re-lost, re-found. Now I had that before. I had, I had said sinner's prayers a couple. I had like four or five of them before I finally got saved. All the other times, I, I don't know. I didn't either really repent or for whatever reason, it, the, all the light didn't shine. I'm not sure what it was. But once you really save, you're in. And you begin to grow, and God puts roots, and you get the Holy Spirit, and all these things begin to change in you. Judas did not, he was not lost by Jesus, he just remained lost. And the Nazbi, it reads this, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so the scripture will be fulfilled. In other words, guarded them, but one perished, who was still in that state of perishing. The betrayal, he said that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What does that mean? The betrayal of King David is found in Psalm 41, verse 9. If you're a note taker, Psalm 41, verse 9. And that was repeated in the life of Jesus. That, that what happened to David also happened to the son of David. Uh, but what the Psalms recorded was also prophetic. It not only literally happened to David, but it also was going to happen to his offspring through, uh, through the line of Mary to David. And Judas, sadly, is the one that fulfills this prophecy with his unbelief and with his greed. He was a covetous man. He, he wanted money more than he wanted the Messiah. Going back to earlier in that evening, Satan literally entered Judas. It's, uh, it, the only other person we see that the Bible records us about will be the future Antichrist. But he literally entered Judas when Judas refused to turn and refused to repent. That's when Satan entered him. Not demonically possessed, literally possessed by Satan himself for that hour. The word perdition, if you see this word, it's not a word that we use that often, but the word perdition, it means destruction, it means perishing, it means waste, it means ruin, 
It means eternal misery. There's nothing about the word you want attached to your life or your soul. Perdition. How sad it is for someone not to believe in Jesus, and especially with Judas's case. He had seen Jesus love on them, heal people of leprosy, raise Lazarus from the dead, teach, preach, pour out, wept. He had seen all of Jesus' love manifested for them and the world. And how sad it is to believe in yourself or Satan's lies instead of what you can see is true. But it's amazing. I mean, you see so many people that can see what Jesus has done and say, no, I want my life. I want it, the, I want it my way. Henry Morris Dr. Henry Morris said this, he said, the son of perdition points to character rather than destiny. The expression means that he was characterized by lostness, not that he was predestined to be lost. That was the, Judas's, that's why he was, all up until this time, he had actually been stealing from the treasury and no one knew it. That's a character, that's part of the character of being lost. Like, if you know, if somebody says, well, I, I, uh, I got saved, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then you live around them, you say, wow, all they do is curse, they, uh, they, they're being unfaithful to their spouse, they do, they're stealing from the company, all this stuff, but they say they're a Christian. I actually, but I remember when I was working in corporate America, uh, I remember one time, uh, and I've mentioned this to you guys before, but I remember, um, you know, one of my colleagues said to another colleague, um, uh, you should not be a deacon. Tim can be one, but you cannot be one. <laughs> and he was really offended uh, because even another unsafe person could see your life does not match. I, I, like, the, other, like, the other guy was not even religious. He was like, I'm not religious, but you two are, but I can tell you, you should not be a deacon. I don't even know what the qualifications are, but you should not be one. I've been on business trips with you. You should not be a deacon, right? He got really offended by it. But there's a, there's a character in Judas that is still compromised because he's yet to really repent. I'm not, and again, Christians aren't perfect. I'm not saying that. Uh, we've said many times, Jesus doesn't say, well done, good and perfect servant. He says, well done and good of what? Faithful servant. We all know what faithfulness looks like. If your kids are faithful to do certain chores, you don't think that they're perfect at it, but you know what faithfulness looks like. And so that's what uh, you can see in Judas's life, there was still an unrepentant life. That's why he was literally stealing from the treasury the entire time. Verse 13, verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This beginning of this word, uh, this ver the beginning of this verse, verse 13, but now. Jesus comes and he's spoken these things, but he's now praying to God that these men, Jesus is saying, but God, I'm coming to you. Now would you give them the joy, my joy, overflowing and filling their souls. Whether you're watching online right now or in this room, how many of you think you have room for even more joy? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say you'll say this to me. If you live to be 99, you'll say that. Because there's still a fallen part of your nature that's still at war with the new nature, right? So there's always room for joy this side of heaven. Yes. Yes. 
but Jesus has come that our joy would be full, filling it up, more full than it currently is, always increasingly. If you live 10 more years or 20 more years or 30 more years, that you can grow in joy over that time. Just like trees keep growing, there's trees out here that predate all of us. They'll be here when we're gone probably. But they're out there and they keep growing. The roots keep going. They can absorb more moisture. We can absorb more of the joy of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 2, this verse is going to come around a lot during the Christmas season. But I'll put up. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Now this is before Jesus even has dawned on the earth. Uh, he's born that night, but I'm saying he's not manifested to the world uh, for quite some time later. And the only people that even knew that night that he was born was his parents. But the angels are saying, For unto you is, I, we bring you good tidings of great joy joy. You see, the angels, they pronounced joy with the birth, birth of Jesus. They pronounced that joy was dawning on the world. The angels pronounced it, but Jesus provides it. Amen? Amen. The angels Amen. simply pronounced it. They, if you said, hey, angels, give us some of that joy, they were like, not us. They would point to Jesus. Angels, we would like some of that joy. We can't give it to you. Go to Bethlehem and find him. We can't give it to you. Go to Calvary and find him. Amen. Not Calvary Chapel. I mean, at the cross. <laughs> you can find it in other churches too, but if they're preaching the gospel. Verses 14 through 16, I'm going to take this as a group together as we bring it to a close. I have given them your word, verse 14, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. These 11 men, they're still in the world, but they're no longer of it. They're still in the world, they're no longer of it. It's not their home anymore. They're now looking towards their home with the Father which goes back to John chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions. He said that to them earlier that night. They've received the words of Christ, which has given them eternal life, but it's also given them enemies. Yes. Jesus said they're going to be hated by the world just as he is hated by the world. They now have enemies because they believed in Jesus and because they're in Jesus and because they're being conformed to the image of Jesus. The world's systems, the world's pleasures, the world's sins, the world's rulers, the world's authorities, the world's false religions, they're all aligned against or rejecting Jesus because of this reason. You ever wonder why, why, why does the world hate Jesus so much? Well, here it is. Jesus, remember going back in the early part of the prayer, it says he has been given authority over all flesh. Remember I said he has authority over every single soul. Every soul. The atheist that doesn't believe him, he still has authority over them. It doesn't matter if they, what they believe, he has authority over their soul. And Jesus calls every soul to repent. That you have to say, this is very evident in our country today. In our country, no one anymore likes to be told, they're wrong or what to do. If you don't believe me, go on Twitter. Go on Facebook. Uh, just, just spent, don't get there too long because you'll get, you know, but you'll see that no one, I mean, no one hardly anymore, no one's the boss of me. 
Everyone's like, I do what I want to do. I am the God of my own little tiny domain. And Jesus says, no, if you want eternal life, you have to give up the throne. And when people are told they have to give it up, they're like, I'm not giving this up. I tell myself what I want to do. No one tells me what to do. I do what I want to do, what pleases me. As long as it's good with me, I'm good with God. But I disagree with half of your life. Well, I don't want to change it. Well, then you can't receive my son. And then that just makes people more mad. They say, let us crucify him. That's what the world did, which we did with the world because our hearts were that way. So you have, to, you have to give all that up and say, Lord, I don't want control anymore. I don't want to be right. I just want to give my life to you. And that's what repentance looks like. It's going the opposite direction of what our heart nature naturally wants to do, which is just, that's what Adam and Eve, right? We, we want to do what we want to do. We want to eat of this tree anyway. I told you not to. Well, now death has entered in, right? Does this make sense? It's just God saying you're going to have to yield that control. But there's a hatred that comes with, uh, you know, and Cain kills Abel because he says, Abel did that, but I don't want to do that, so I'll just kill him. And I don't understand how it all works. I'm just saying that it's been visible from the beginning, and it's still visible now, the hatred. So Jesus says, I know they're going to be in the world, they're going to be hated by the world. But just as Jesus isn't of the world, they aren't of the world anymore, anymore. Jesus has changed their nature I don't know about you, but um, the more you realize this world is not your home, you stop trying to put roots in this world. You stop trying to like build bigger life for yourself in this world, and you realize, I'm just passing through. It, it allows you to stay focused on Jesus and not all the other distractions that are around us. And the prayer of Jesus is not that they be taken out of the world, but that they be protected from the schemes of Satan. Now, these men are definitely born again. They've been changed. They've been completely, radically saved. So what schemes is he talking about? He already said they'd have trouble. He said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. He's not shielding them from that. They're all going to die a martyr's death except for John. So he's not shielding them from that. What is it he's talking about? What are the schemes of Satan he's talking about? Well, he's talking about that they would not fall into apostasy, which is now changing the scriptures and making it their own religion, which we've seen plenty of in the last 2,000 years, that they would not fall into worldliness, which is returning to sin, or lukewarm living, which is not really returning to sin, but no zeal for God anymore. And that may be some of our problem here today, right? That those, all those things, that they would be kept from apostasy, worldliness, and lukewarm living. And then we'll look at uh, verses 17 through 19 together as we close these last couple of verses. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctify means to consecrate. It means to purify. It means to set apart. Um, it means to set apart from the profane, dedicated to God. Like little Moses was putting a little... A little uh, a little basket, and set apart. Little Samuel was given to the Lord as a young child. They were completely set apart, dedicated. And God wants each of us to be set apart, dedicated to him. But first he has to purify us, and he has to take us out of the profane things and make us righteous with the blood of Jesus because we don't have any righteousness. So he has to set us apart and sanctify us, and he does that work in us. But the Father's truth 
through Christ has already sanctified the 11. Judas is not sanctified. These 11 have been sanctified. And the word of God will continue to sanctify them for the remainder of their life and also the work of the Spirit. But just as Jesus was sent as a light to the world, they're now going to be lesser lights reflecting the light of Jesus, like the moon reflects the sun. They're going to be these lesser lights reflecting his light in the world. And then verse 19, as Jesus looks to the cross, uh, he's the only one that really can sanctify himself. Amen? Amen? Because he's the only one who's sinless. So Jesus, unlike us, he has to sanctify us, but he says, I sanctify myself because he's sinless. He can sanctify. He can set himself apart. He did set himself apart for the work of the cross and sanctifying them. And the disciples, they'll receive the sanctification by divine revolution. What is divine revolution? Truth from God. Truth from God is divine revolution. Uh, divine revelation, not revolution. Divine revelation is truth from God. Truth from God is divine revelation. So when you're reading the scriptures, you're reading divine revelation. You're reading truth. But as I had a pastor years ago express it to me, and I've, I've, never, I've never lost it, it's true truth. It's true that I-95 North will take you to Washington, D.C., but that's not a transformational truth. It can be a very frustrating truth if you're there tomorrow on 995, but it's not a transformational truth. The truth that Jesus can save you from your sins is a transformational truth, right? It's divine revelation from God. That's the kind of truth that the scriptures have. Um, I love this insight by Charles Spurgeon as we bring it to a close. The more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will be. The more truth you believe, the more sanctified you'll be. The operation of truth upon the mind is to separate a man from the world unto the service of God. See, Jesus is not praying for men that can sanctify themselves or men that can even do the job. I know I can't do the job. God sanctifies me to do the job because I have no ability to do, do, to do the job. It's all of God to do the job in your life and in my life. But they're called, and we're called to believe this truth, not just to know about it, Believe it. Amen? Amen? Believe this truth. Cling to it. Especially in the days in which we live. Know that the world, as we wrap it up here, know the world is not your home. Amen? Amen. This is not your home. You're just a, you're not even a renter. Someone else is paying your rent for you. Move on through. I've said it many times. The rest stop on I-95 is not my destination. I, I get in, I get out. That's your time in this world. It's a vapor, the Bible says. It's a vapor. This world's not your home. And follow Jesus daily in prayer as you make your way home. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you again that your words are truth and they sanctify us and they, and they cleanse us if we have a soft and repentant heart. And even after we've been saved, Lord, we need to keep having that soft heart that you keep us from apostasy and you keep us from worldliness and you keep us from just lukewarm living. And so Jesus, as you prayed for them, we know you pray for us and we thank you that you have prayed for us and you've changed us. And Lord, as we enter into this time of baptism, we pray that you would be glorified through it. In your name we pray. Amen.